Good afternoon or good evening, depending on which coast you reside, and welcome to Mito Action's roundtable discussion with Dr. Melanie Gillingham. Most of you here know Dr. Gillingham and her work, and I know we're all so excited um, that she's here with us to talk about the cardiac analysis she's done with the FAOD patients. My name is Stephanie Harry, and I'm an LCHAD patient, or parent, and one of the patient support coordinators here at Mito Action, and I'll be your host this evening. Today's discussion will be recorded and available on MitoAction's website in the coming days, as well as on our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. This space is a little different than our traditional expert series. Um, typically, we set this call up as um, a webinar, but today is actually a Zoom meeting, which means that you have both video and audio access. So if you can take your time right now and just look and see, make sure that you are muted and um, you can choose whether or not you wanna have your video on or off. But the most important thing is that um, you keep your audio off while you're not speaking because that will give everybody much more pleasurable experience. If you have any questions during Dr. Gillingham's presentation, feel free to put them in the chat and I can ask them after the presentation. Or if you prefer, you can just raise your virtual hand and ask your own question um, after the presentation. Please remember just to keep your questions more general and not about your specific situation. So without further ado, let me officially introduce Dr. Gillingham. Dr. Melanie Gillingham's research in the Department of Molecular and Medical Genetics has focused on various novel therapies for fatty acid oxidation disorders. For 20 years, Dr. Gillingham and her colleagues have conducted clinical trials in subjects with disorders in the fatty acid oxidation pathway. She has examined the effects of MCT supplementation prior to exercise and the effects of increased dietary protein on metabolic control and energy balance in subjects with LCHAD, CPT2, and VLK deficiencies. Dr. Gillingham serves on the planning committee for INFORM, an international group working for the advancement of medical and nutrition therapies for fatty acid oxidation disorders. Most recently, Dr. Gillingham, in collaboration with Dr. Vockley, completed a randomized trial to examine the effects of an odd chain fatty acid supplement, triheptanoin, on myopathy and cardiac function of patients with long chain fatty acid oxidation disorders. Dr. Gillingham has also conducted a series of studies examining the etiology of retinopathy in LCHAD and the role of diet in the progression of vision loss. Overall, her lab studies fatty acid oxidation disorders with a particular focus on LCHAD, and currently they have both human and basic science projects going on. Dr. Gillingham, thank you so much for all of your hard work in our community over the years. And just from a, a parent of a patient's perspective, I just want to thank you so much. One of the things that I love about you is that you're not only a brilliant scientist, but that you care so much for the families and the patients um, that you come in contact every day. So just thank you so much for everything. You're very welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for that very nice introduction. Okay, I'm going to try sharing my screen. Okay, is that visible? Thumbs up? Yep, yeah. okay, great. All right, well, I'm gonna start with the acknowledgements. It's a little bit backwards, but I wanna make a couple of points. Um, first off, my training, I am a metabolic dietitian. From a clinical perspective, I am not a cardiologist. Um, and I've been studying LCHAT. I consider my work really you know, nutrition and physiology and I've stumbled into this cardiac um, world. The work I'm gonna be, and the slides I'm gonna be presenting today, uh, the bulk of that has really been done by Gabby Elizondo, who's a metabolic um, biochemical geneticist who works in, um, with me in, at OHSU. And we've been partnering with uh, Dr. Jeff Vinicor, who is a pediatric cardiologist at Yale, and also an electrophysiologist. So he studies the electrical conduction of the heart. Um, and then uh, I also acknowledge, I know um, Dr. Katie Chatfield is on, who's also a cardiologist who all has a double specialty in genetics. And I've really relied on her information and, and knowledge about cardiac stuff as well. So I'm going to pass on this information. The presentation is not going to be that long. It's going to be a little bit on the shorter side. And I would love to hear from parents and patients, your thoughts about this and how we might proceed uh, forward to find out more information. I'm going to present some information. I don't have a lot of answers. I have a lot more questions than I have answers. 
and and I'd like to hear your feedback about moving um, moving this forward so we can try to answer some of these um, critical questions. All right. So this is a busy slide, but I always have to start with a, a pathway that talks about what we're what we're speaking about. So trifunctional protein is illustrated here as one of those proteins in the fatty acid oxidation pathway. And it does three things in fatty acid oxidation. It has uh, the first uh, the first step is VLCAD, but then the next step is um, a hydratase. And then this third, this second step in trifunctional protein is the LCHAT activity right here. And that's really what we're talking about. Um, and then the last step for trifunctional protein is this thiolase. And then we have the first round of beta oxidation and it keeps going. So if this is the function of this protein that's missing, LCHAD, why is that? There is um, a specific common mutation in LCHAD and it's typically noted by this uh, G1528G to C mutation. So it's a change in the DNA that causes a one amino acid change in the protein, specifically in the LCHAD site. So specifically where this enzyme works. So when you have this particular DNA mutation, it reduces LCHAD activity, but it keeps the hydratase and the thiolase activity relatively intact. So, so you still have VLCAD activity, hydratase, and thiolase. It's just this specific LCHAT activity that's reduced. And I think that's important in some of the data that we're looking at in a minute, which is why I, I wanted to explain that. Most patients with LCHAD have either one copy from one parent or potentially two copies of this common mutation here in, here in the United States. It's an extremely common mutation and, and most patients have one or two copies of this specific mutation. Okay, so let's go back uh, and talk about what we think of as cardiac symptoms for patients with LCHAD deficiency when we first figured out this disease. So it was first, uh, the, the protein was first discovered and, and the disease described in the, in the 90s, late, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and so if we think about what happened before we had newborn screening and kids presented in the emergency room, what kind of cardiac symptoms did we typically see? So infants that presented symptomatically would often present with hypertrophic, which is um, a larger heart or dilated, which is also larger, but thinner walls um, and, a, and a heart that didn't work so well, cardiomyopathy, it's not pumping as well as it would. So that would be typical for an infant that presented symptomatically before we had newborn screening. Um, some infants could, could present even as far um, with heart failure. So a, a really sick heart. Uh, there were some infants who had arrhythmias um, and there were reports of sudden um, cardiac deaths in um, very young children early on in the pre-newborn screening. And as some of the studies uh, suggest 50 to 60% of those symptomatic babies had cardiac symptoms involvement. So when I think of LCHAD originally, I was thinking of this pre-newborn screening, there was a lot of cardiac involvement. However, um, if we diagnosed LCHAD and we treated it aggressively, we gave them lots of um, calories, we prevented catabolism, started them on low-fat diet, MCT, often those hearts got better. They, they reversed. Um, Dr. Chatfield talked about that in form just recently, that they, they, they have this ability to really recover. And so the cardiac symptoms would get much better. And then later patients would go to see their cardiologist annually, but, but they might have healthy, normal hearts. Um, for a long period of time. Now, sometimes those symptoms could reemerge during a bad metabolic crisis, but, but classically, I think of the, the cardiac symptoms presented pre-newborn screening. If we diagnosed them correctly and treated them, that would often reverse, most often get better. Um, and then if we continue to treat them, their hearts would stay good for, uh, it would be healthy for quite a long time. Uh, so, oops, let me see. Here. So what happened with newborn screening? If we started newborn screening, did that change the cardiac picture in particular for LCHAD? So this is actually a paper 
um, that was published um, from the European group looking at the change between patients that presented symptomatically in orange, so clinically diagnosed, versus patients who were picked up by newborn screening, so before they got sick. And in VLCAD, you can see that we basically got rid of, you know, pre-newborn pre screening, about 60% presented with cardiac symptoms, and after newborn screening, we're just not seeing cardiomyopathy anymore in those kids. And in LCHAD, about half of them presented with cardiomyopathy when we picked them up clinically, symptomatically, and we've reduced it. It's not gone away, but we've certainly made it a lot better. So newborn screening has really changed how I think about cardiac complications. We pick up people early, we treat them, and their hearts are better. So that's fantastic. Newborn screening has really made a difference. So a number of years ago, this is kind of my picture of what I think about as far as cardiac with um, LCHAD. And I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. There's really nothing special about what I do that I found this information. Um, my phone rang and I picked it up and it was a parent um, telling me about a sudden cardiac event in their um, young adult with LCHAD. It was... Um, it was a it was a moving story, tragic story, and and um, I was you know surprised to hear it, and it wasn't something that I was on my radar. Next phone call I get, I got a, another parent telling me about this. So after two or three times, I start thinking, oh, I'm seeing a pattern emerge here that was not something was on my radar. It wasn't something that I thought of as a as a complication later in life in LCHAD. Is this something that we need to be looking out for? So let me make a few definitions. Um, sudden cardiac death, SCD, is a term I'm going to use. Um, sudden cardiac death is when um, a patient uh, has been found deceased and that previous 24 hours um, was not in the hospital, did not report illness, and on autopsy, there was no other evidence reason for that death. And so that's ruled a sudden cardiac death. Um, another definition I want to make is sudden cardiac arrest. So sudden cardiac arrest, similar, is that it's a patient who is not necessarily in the hospital, but is otherwise seems to be doing okay, and then would have a sudden um, change in the arrhythmic part of their um, heart and uh, collapse, and so like, kind of like a heart attack and, and need to be resuscitated. So that would be sudden cardiac arrest. So those are two terms I'm going to be using. So after I got a few of these phone calls, um, we set about trying to collect all the medical records we could get for any patients uh, with LCHAD that was sort of adolescents through young adults, just trying to, to find out what we could. So I'm going to describe a retrospective chart review, again, that uh, Dr. Elizondo has done most of the work on, where we've really tried to dive into as many cases as we could collect and look at cardiac symptoms in those medical records. So it is a retrospective chart review, um, which we can discuss later, has its limitations as far as a study design, but it's a place to start. It's a place to try to start gathering some information. So in this uh, chart review, we have 15 um, subjects with LCHAD from 13 years of age to 31 years of age, nine uh, females, six males. So let's just talk about sort of their presentation. So, so only one of these 15 was picked up by newborn screening. The other 14 were either diagnosed because of a family history or symptomatically, okay? So if we go back and we look at their birth uh, records, a couple of things, if you wanna look towards the right hand of the slide, there's one sibling pair in this group. So there are 14 mothers represented here. And of those 14 mothers, 12 pregnancies had delivery complications. 11 of the, of the records diagnosed as HELP syndrome. So the true classic HELP syndrome with elevated liver enzymes, low platelets. Um, and there was one maternal death within those 11 HELP syndrome um, mothers. There was another um, pregnancy that the record said a severe hemorrhage, which probably was HELP syndrome, but it wasn't diagnosed that. So we called it something a little bit different in our chart review. Um, and of those 12 pregnancies, nine babies were delivered prematurely because of um, mom's health. 
So the relationship between help syndrome, early prematurity is, is really strong. Obviously, 12 out of uh, 15 children and 14 mothers had some sort of pregnancy um, complication. So that's it's a high percentage. Um, there were four uh, of these patients who did have a family history, so affected siblings. Um, two families had had an a earlier um, infant die and die, be diagnosed um, post-mortem. And so then subsequent children were screened for LCHAD. Um, there was one um, patient in this cohort who um, her older brother was diagnosed with LCHAD and had a sudden cardiac death at age 14. Um, but both of them had been diagnosed. He had presented symptomatically and she was subsequently identified because of her brother. And then there was one, as I mentioned, picked up by newborn screening, the youngest, the 13-year-old in, in this particular cohort. So that's just a little bit about the early presentation um, in these 15 patients. So how about their diagnosis? Um, how do we make the diagnosis of LCHAD? So uh, all but the newborn screening one and maybe one other were diagnosed somewhere early in, in infancy. So between three days and nine months of life, they showed up with symptoms or because of the family history, the diagnosis was made. The 10 patients of the 15 that were symptomatic at presentation had classic LCHAD symptoms. And you all know these symptoms better than I because you've lived it. Um, they presented with hypoketotic hypoglycemia, there were a couple of babies that uh, were lethargic and in somewhat of a coma, failure to thrive, fatty liver. And four of those 10 had a cardiac symptom at presentation when they presented symptomatically. So they had a mild dilated cardi cardiomyopathy when the diagnosis was made. There were five that were asymptomatic. In other words, they were picked up because of a positive family screening or the one that was um, picked up by newborn screening. Um, so that's sort of how the diagnosis was made in this group of 15. So what about their genotypes? We talked a little bit at the beginning about that common mutation. So these are all 15 patients. Uh, so you can see the males and females, the age from 13 to 31. Half of them have two copies of that common mutation. And the other half have at least one, and then maybe some other private mutation that's unique to their family. But by and large, everybody's got at least one copy of the common mutation that really lowers that LCHAD enzyme activity, but leaves the hydratase and the thiolase of trifunctional proteins relatively um, still working. So genotypically, they, they have a, the, this common mutation is the predominant mutation that we see. So what about the clinical course after diagnosis. So all 15 have some element of retinopathy um, from just you know, mild pigment changes to substantial vision loss. All 15 have some elements of peripheral neuropathy. It's a wide range. Some only have loss of reflexes. Others have had um, quite a bit of peripheral neuropathies uh, needing AFOs for uh, walking to using wheelchairs or other assistive devices. It has waxed and waned over the course of their lives. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse, but they all have had some peripheral neuropathy. And as you can imagine, again, you know this better than I, multiple rhabdomyolysis crisis of course, of, over the course of their lives. So they've been hospitalized multiple different times with high CKs, muscle pain, needing IV fluids and glucose, uh, those kinds of things. So very typical LCHAD complications that we think about was true for all 15 um, patients in our chart review. Okay, so let's talk about the sudden cardiac events. So of the 15, nine had a um, sudden cardiac event of some kind. There were two that had a sudden cardiac death, a 19-year-old fem female and a 26-year-old male who um, were found deceased in their homes after previously um, had been reported well. Well, they, they said they didn't feel well, but other than that, they weren't, they weren't in a metabolic crisis. Um, there were six that had a, a sudden cardiac arrest, so some sort of VTAC or a ventric, that stands for ventricular tachycardia, where heart rhythm is kind of going up and down, or ventricular fibrillation, where it's just kind of fibrillating, but not really pumping very well. 
And the age of those events were between 13 and 21 years of age. Uh, one of the um, subjects in this group of six was a, a female who had um, had some dilated cardiomyopathy and then had a, a, a ventricular tachycardic event. Um, and that progressed uh, slowly over several years. And then six years later, she did um, pass away with heart failure. So it really, her heart really never recovered from that, in, um, from that episode. Um, I think I mentioned in the earlier that most people's hearts recover that, you know, aggressive treatments it does. And that's true. Most people do, but it, clearly not everybody's heart bounces back from, from these insults um, as shown here. Um, there was uh, one male who also had a mild dilated cardiomyopathy and was, and was ill and was in the hospital and had a, a, a ventricular tachycardic event um, and was resuscitated and on uh, ECMO, which is, uh, you may have heard of with COVID, it's a supplemental kind of helps your heart and lungs uh, for seven days, but he recovered and his heart's doing um, well. Uh, there was one um, subject who had a really bad rhabdo episode. So CKs of 300,000, his kidneys were really um, struggling. So he had, a, he had a bad episode, had an episode of v, uh, ventricular tachycardia while he was at the hospital with his rhabdo episode, um, again, was stabilized and, and recovered. Um, so that that's three of those um, six. The other three had a sudden... Um, cardiac arrest, a VTAC event in an otherwise healthy situation. So they weren't in rhabdo, they weren't in metabolic decompensation, they weren't in crisis, they weren't in the hospital. Um, and that surprised me. I would have anticipated that, that it would have gone together with metabolic decompensation. So that was very surprising to me when I started uh, looking through records and talking to parents. Uh, there was one other uh, male in this group who had some PVCs, that's a term I haven't used yet, pre-ventricular contraction. So it's a rhythm. I'm not a cardiologist. It's a rhythm looks looks kind of, the, the squiggly little line looks a little funny. It's, it's contracting differently. Um, and his cardiologist was monitoring this very closely. And as they got more frequently, they elected to implant, uh, an ICD stands for uh, implantable cardiac defibrillator. So it's a um, um, an implanted device that it would detect the rhythm and then um, kind of give you a shock to get your heart back into normal rhythm. Um, of the, I should back up and say of the six that had these events, four of them did have these defibrillators placed before they were discharged from the, from the hospital. So that's uh, nine of the 15 in our retrospective study. Um, so other cardiac phenotypes that we noticed in the other six patients that were that are in our study, um, we have uh, one female who has um, an enlarged left a a aorta atrium uh, or atrium, which is the upper chamber of the heart, um, and a couple of concentric uh, left ventricular hypertrophy. We'll talk a little bit about that, a little bit enlarged left ventricle. But both of these have been considered mild by their cardiologists. They're followed closely, but they're watching um, these things um, as they grow older. And then four females who've had in their charts, you know, sometimes some arrhythmias, some sinus tachycardias, some PVCs, again, those funny little rhythms, but it's been mild. It's not been anything terribly concerning. And so again, they're being followed by their cardiologists, but nothing, um, untoward has, been ha has happened so far. And those uh, females, uh, again, we looked at their records between the ages of eight and 21. So that's sort of the overall 15 patients in our retrospective chart review. As we've been talking with Dr. Vinokur, who's the electrophysiologist um, reviewing these records, uh, he really is starting to see three different patterns that were emerging in adolescents, young adults. And one of them is this dilated cardiomyopathy pattern. Um, again, I'm going to explain this sort of poorly, but uh, dilated cardiomyopathy is kind of what we what I thought of as infants presenting pre-newborn screening that we talked about earlier. Uh, the heart's a little bit bigger, but the walls, as illustrated in this picture, are a little thinner, and it maybe not be pumping and is efficiently ejecting all the all the blood to the rest of the body. Um, so. 
I think of this as what we saw before we started newborn screening. And we do see some adolescents and adults where this dilated cardiomyopathy is emerging again, uh, where they have a, enlar a, a, a thinner walls of the left ventricle and, and decreased ejection fraction. And for some of those patients, um, whether they had ventricular tachycardia, like a, 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 an arrest or not, they've recovered. In one case, she didn't recover, but in some cases, aggressive treatment, their hearts have recovered and they no longer have this, uh, their, their, their hearts are doing better. Um, I don't know if it's, I, again, not a cardiologist, I don't know if it's 100% better, but th their hearts have recovered and they're, and they're doing better. So there is some um, recovery after an, in an insult. Another pattern that seems to be emerging is something I had not, as not as a cardiologist, I hadn't really thought about before, but he's seeing some picture of a restrictive um, cardiomyopathy that develops hyper a uh, hypertrophic picture. So what I mean by this, I'll try to describe it. Um, restrictive meaning that the left ventricle, the main chamber of the heart gets a little stiff, doesn't it's not as flexible as it should be. And that puts pressure on the upper chamber, the right atrium. So our right atrium might get a little bit enlarged in that restrictive capacity. And that's sort of the pre-development of cardiomyopathy, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where the walls get kind of thick and the chamber on the inside might be a little bit smaller because it's the walls of the heart have gotten thick. And sometimes uh, this has been associated with atrial fibrillation, which is different than the, the VTAC we talked about, but the atrium that's getting this pressure up here, this upper chamber of the heart might flutter a bit. Um, and, it, and it seems to start with this restrictive and move towards this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So that's another group of patients that he sees this pattern sort of emerging. And then the last one is these arrhythmias. Um, so a normal, if you have those leads placed on your chest and you get a normal EKG, you get this little uh, electrical pattern. Um, and ventricular tachycardia that we've been talking about, these arrhythmias, it looks like this, this super up and down wavy pattern. Um, and I think this, again, was part of the reason I we embarked on this project because when I started getting calls from parents, this is surprising to me. It wasn't something that I associated with LCHAT until recently, but sudden cardiac arrhythmias have been observed in a couple of cases that I've just described to you. And I think the thing that was really surprising to me is it, sometimes it was with metabolic decompensation, let's say rhabdomyolysis, and sometimes it wasn't, sometimes they were healthy. And I would have, I would have, before I started this process said that they went together. And, and now I'm saying maybe not, maybe that it can happen when they're not in metabolic decompensation. So what about their other medical treatments? Um, I, I have to confess as dietitians, we're terrible at documenting. So Dr. Elizondo has scoured these charts, trying to figure out what they were prescribed. And we're even better, worse documenting what people are actually taking. So prior to any of these cardiac events, all of the patients would being followed by their biochemical geneticists, they were prescribed a low-fat diet. Most of them were uh, recommended to, to take MCT supplements. There were a variety of nutritional supplements in their records, like multivitamins, extra vitamin D, DHA, CoQ10, omega-3s, carnitine. Some patients had some prescriptions for pain medicine or nausea. Now, if you talk to patients and ask them to remember before the event what they were taking, they often will say, well, I wasn't really taking that stuff very well. I, I do have to say that that's, we have to take that with caution because I think we always remember things maybe a little differently after a medical event than what was the real reality. So I don't, I don't know how much of this everybody was doing before, before the events, but they would say, oh, I wasn't really doing too much of this. That's what they tell me. After the sudden cardiac arrest, um, they were on a similar diet prescription. Some of them started C7. Nobody was on C7 before, but some of them started C7 afterwards. Some of them have implanted defibrillators. A few of them have gone on to take some um, cardiac medicines, including a beta blocker, um, some other cardiac meds to try to um, control those PVCs, those uh, funny contractions um, in their heart. So that's kind of where they are um, today. So 
um, kind of coming to the end and I really want to open it up and hear from you. I think that for me, this is a previously unrecognized late complication of LCHAD, the arrhythmic stuff, the different patterns and cardiac complications we're seeing. And some of them are occurring in the absence of acute metabolic decompensation. And again, that was um, not something I would have said a number of years ago. And of those who had a sudden cardiac arrest, only one really had those super high CKs, that really classic rhabdo presentation. What about the four that had infant cardiomyopathy? So if you have heart, if you present symptomatically with cardiac issues as an infant, is that more likely to lead to cardiac issues as a young adult or an adolescent? All four of them, all four of the patients who had infant cardiomyopathy did have a sudden cardiac arrest as an adolescent. However, we also had five that had it who didn't have cardiomyopathy. So it's at this point, I really think it's hard to say, but certainly the ones that did have infant cardiomyopathy did uh, went on to have an event later in their, their life. Why? Why are we seeing this? There's lots of different um, theories, and, and I don't have any answers. We don't know what's causing it. Is it chronic energy deficiency? Is it accumulation of toxic lipids? You know, is those are all thrown out as potential hand-waving causes, but I don't think we know. I think that that's really the big question. So what if you really follow your low-fat diet, you're taking your MCT or your C7 and your supplements, is that going to prevent these issues? Again, we don't know. Um, patients, again, report that they weren't really doing that much of that, and then now they're being much more careful since the event. Is that going to prevent a, a subsequent event? Again, we don't know. We're going to need to follow people forward in time. We just don't know for sure, A, what's causing or B, how we prevent um, cardiac complications in the future. So that brings me to, I've got tons of questions. How, how do I find the answers? How do I go forward with investigating what might be some answers? Um, we did start a, a cardiac study with a cardiac fellow here at OHSU. And I'll just tell you a little bit about it. We haven't enrolled anybody at this point, but we got a, a small grant and the money is sitting in a, an account. So we could do this study. Um, what, they, what the study involves would be having um, a patient do a, um, after consenting, do a cardiac MRI. So that'd be going into an MRI magnet, clinical magnet. Um, with an infusion of, of contrast to get really good detailed pictures of the heart um, and, and some blood samples. So draw, it'd be an IV going into a magnet. It says here one and a half to two hours. I think that's probably optimistic. It might take three hours to do this, but you know that, that's the general procedure. And then uh, the cardiologist, the fellow was really interested in doing a stress test where you would pedal on a bike as fast as you could. And, and we'd look at your cardiac function under exercise. And that would be on the second day. So it would be a cardiac MRI and a, and a cardiac stress test where you're pedaling on a bike really fast. Uh, the fellow that was really driving this project actually graduated and moved to the University of Colorado, Denver, where Dr. Chatfield uh, practices. So this project's been a little bit on hold. But I have to say, I've been a little reluctant. And I'd love to hear parents' thoughts. Uh, you, you know, would you be interested? Would you feel comfortable enrolling um, your child in a study like this? Or as a young adult, would you be comfortable doing a study like this? What are some, some of your thoughts about a study that would involve MRI and stress testing? Um, so I, I'm, I'm really open to your input of what you think about a study like this. Um, it, Obviously, the many institutions could do these kinds of tests. We could do something like this at um, other institutions as well. So I'm going to open it up for discussion and stop sharing my screen here. I think the take-home message is that I'm we're seeing in medical records some sudden cardiac arrest events in young adolescent and young adults with LCHAD and in the absence of metabolic decompensation in some cases. I have a lot of questions about how to best study this, what potential um, treatments might prevent this, if we can get to the bottom of what's causing it would be really helpful, and some ideas of how we might test it, but I, 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 I'm certainly open to other ideas as well. So I'm going to stop sharing so I can see all of you better and um, open it up 
to anybody's comments or questions. So just a reminder, you're more than welcome to raise your hand, um, show your face, unmute yourself and ask your questions directly, or um, you can put your questions in the chat. Um, we've had a couple come in, um, Dr. Gillingham. One, one started with, how did you pick the 15 subjects that you pulled their charts? Um, where did I that picked come from? everybody I could get my hands on. So if you know you're not in this and you're interested in participating, I have a, a, a data repository. Basically, it's a IRB place where we keep records and we make sure that they're you know collected all appropriately. Um, and so I, I collected everybody I, I could get my hands on that were adolescent, um, older adults with LCHAD. Um, so it was not selected. I have a couple that I know of that are not in the 15 that I just told you about um, who I've contacted who have never just never given me the consents. So the 15 that I got are the 15 I was able to get with consent. Okay. And they all had some kind of cardiac event, even if it wasn't the sudden cardiac arrest or death? Well, no, or... the, not all of them. So I think the, that uh, nine definitely. And then there are some cardiac, you know, complications, but they, at least the chart indicates they're kind of mild and several more, but there's probably three or four that, you know, there's some mild things that their cardiologist noted, but I wouldn't call it a cardiac phenotype or symptoms or something like that. So I wouldn't say all of them. Okay. Okay. I'd say the majority. So, so if you are a patient or a parent and you like, and your child or yourself goes into cardiac arrest and you want to do something with your information, then they can call somebody at your lab to be like, Hey, what do I need to sign? <laughs> um, it, even if you have, I mean, anybody, I, I'd be interested in any record. So if you're interested in participating, um, you can send me an email, Ashley on my acknowledgement slide, Ashley Greger is my study coordinator. So she would send you a consent, get you to sign that, and then a medical records release. And then she'll do all the rest of the work of, of gathering the records. Um, so yes, we're still collecting records. The 15 were, it was not a selective process. It was just anybody I could, I could get a hold of. Oh, okay. Okay. So if, even if there's no sudden cardiac mm -hmm. issue, I think, okay. I think we, the denominator, we want to have people who haven't had an issue. So we know what percentage we're looking at that might have issues and, and some that might not. I, I, I don't think it has to have had a cardiac event at all. Okay. Um, there is, um, oh, Christy has her hand up. So I'm going to let Christy ask her question. And there's a couple in the chat I'm going to ask too. So go okay. ahead and unmute yourself, Christy. Hello. Um, I was just wondering if you knew how many kids, well, I guess people without LCHAD that have heart issues that are because I feel like our kids are monitored a lot closer than regular kids. So are these potentially things that other people would have? They just don't find them because they're not under a microscope? Or is this like all the issues, like the, I guess the six patients that had minor cardiac issues, I guess, do people out in normal life have them? Or is it just LCHED kids? That, does that make sense? <laughs> Right. Are we just picking stuff up because we're monitoring really closely? My, I, I don't know the answer for sure. And I might, to, I might kick this question to, to Dr. Chatfield, but my, my feeling is that at least certain, most of this is no, it's not necessarily normal in everyday kids. Thank you. That's my thought, but. Um, great job, Melanie. All that was wonderful. And um, you are, you could be a cardiologist. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Definitely um, not. So to answer that question, um, some of the, some of the findings are, are not normal, like not things that you would see in a typical kid, but the PVCs, for example, so the premature ventricular contractions, those are like extra beats that come from the lower chamber muscles. And anyone can have those. Like I probably have a lot when I drink too much coffee. So that can be a normal finding. So it just depends on what the, you know, what the finding is to have um, a dilated heart or a, or a hypertrophied heart. Um, that's not normal or typical. And those are exactly the type of things that um, we monitor for in um, 
LCFAOD kids. And so that's not something that you would, ju you would just pick up because you're randomly screening kids in the general population. But rhythm, EKG abnormalities, those are sometimes seen in the general population. So it just depends on the type of EKG finding that it is. But the PVCs thing is it's certainly like that raises our concern in FAODs, but it's also something that can be seen in typical kids. So really what the important thing is, is to see what if there's changes over time. So if you know that a kid doesn't have them typically, and then suddenly they start coming out of the, you know, out of the blue where they weren't there before, then that's a change that is important to pay attention to. If that helps. That's yes, us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now that's really, really helpful. Um, another question came in is, would you recommend a portable defibrillator be at least in homes or perhaps in a car of an LCHAD patient knowing some of these things are going on? Boy, that's a tough call. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Again, I, I yes, I, I, I suppose this is, this is all, as I said, when I picked up the phones is all very um, surprising and scary kind of information. So I suppose that would be one way to, to handle it. Um, I, I definitely think I'm certainly pushing people that are in our, you know, natural history studies have to be sure and stay in touch with your cardiologist. You need to be seeing your cardiologist pretty regularly. So when you see um, your cardiologist regularly, there was a parent that had wanted to be on the call that couldn't, and she was curious. She asked, um, are there recommendations outside of an EKG and echo for families with LCFAODs? Could it possibly be worth doing a cardiac MRI, which she mentioned for the study that, that it's possible to do that? Um, but she And she's a nurse, so she was asking, she said she's heard of... Um, ceramatide levels being checked for other kinds of patients? Could this be a possible level that uh, should be checked in FAODs? And maybe that's a question for you and um, and Dr. Chatfield. I don't know what y'all's thoughts are. Right. So let me just address a couple of them. So I don't know, and I'm like, Dr. Chatfield talk about the monitoring. There have been some kids in this group of 15 who, and, and um, Gabby might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but have had loop recorders. So they've placed like an implantable thing that just records um, over a long period of time. And then there were a lot of records where they did a halter monitor where, and I, some of you may have done this before, where you have to wear it around this pack around your neck for like a week or so. Um, and at least in the loop recorder, one of them, it did pick up those more frequent PVCs that Dr. Chatfield was mentioning. So it was helpful, whether that's needed everywhere. I don't know. That's just what we've observed in the record. The ceramide question, and then I'll, I'll, I'll punt it over to Katie. Um, the ceramides are interesting, and it's a point of research in heart, as well as other types of lipids in heart. However, it's still at the research stage, and I wouldn't know what to do with the test if we did that. I wouldn't know what that meant, and I wouldn't know how to change any treatment if we measured it. So at this point, that's still very much a research question and not uh, ready for prime time clinical. But as far as monitoring, Katie, do you have any thoughts about other monitoring techniques? Um, yeah, so I would say that we're def definitely due for some updated, you know, guidance about, you know, formalizing or standardizing what we do for patients. Um, you know, an echo and an ECG on a regular basis makes sense. But now we have a lot more sophisticated types of monitoring and who should get it and when they should get it is sort of a unanswered question. So I think it really depends on, you know, there's still a lot of individual, you know, care decisions depending on the patient, like every, you know, babies don't need loop recorders probably. Um, but when kids get older and if they, um, if they have symptoms that you're not detecting on a Holter monitor, which is a monitor that you can wear for 24 or 48 hours, or there's a different type of monitor that you can wear, it's called a Zio. It's like a patch that you can wear for up to two weeks. So there are different kinds of levels and lengths of time of monitoring. Um, and so there's lots of things that we can do. It's just really deciding um, in whom and how often it should be performed. But uh, in, in my practice, I, I do use Holter monitors, at least on a, 
on an annual basis, especially as kids get older, because we don't understand why these events happen. And, and we don't always understand what the risk factors are, like if we should be more concerned about a kid with that has PVCs or has a little bit of dilation, like probably we should be a little bit more attentive to those kids, um, but we should be attentive to everyone, um, you know, in a, in the most standardized way that we can. So I think some of these, these tools are very useful and, and very standard of care in cardiology. So holters and event monitors and loop recorders are all things that we use a lot. Um, you know, other blood test biomarkers, that's a little bit trickier um, we, those are not validated. And like uh -uh. Dr. Gillingham said, are still on a, like, they're interesting and we'd like to investigate them more, but very much still in the research, early research stage. So, you know, every, it's something as a discussion that you should have with your individual cardiologist, but when they're not sure what to do, they're welcome to call me. Thank you so much. We'll make sure that we get the word out there about that. Um, I'm I'm curious, like uh, troponin levels, because I know that's something that's been thrown around a little bit. Do you think that that is um, a valid blood level to check or like worthwhile or it doesn't hurt if they're already getting their labs drawn? So maybe we'll be able to figure out what it means in a couple of years or what's your thoughts on, on that? So I, I can comment on our chart review. So, and, and Gabby can maybe unmute and tell me if I'm wrong, but there were several people at really high troponin levels consistently, but I don't know what we do with that information. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We haven't collected enough data systematically to know like what's normal for all of these kids. And if that's something that just happens as they get older, and like, you know, you have to correlate that with something because if you, if you can't, you know, correlate it with a cardiac finding either by echo or maybe even MRI, then it's hard to know what it means. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly those numbers could be really out of whack in a kid that's in crisis or having rhabdo. So you have to take it in context of what's happening with that particular person at that particular time. Um, so it can be useful for trending, but when you, you know, just isolated values, it's hard to know what to do with those. I think that there's another test called a BNP or an NT pro BNP, which again is, um, it's sort of something you have to track in an individual person. A single value doesn't always help you, but if you know that it's low at baseline, it's something that's easy to check as a blood test that sometimes may be more accessible in an emergency room than an echo um, that can give you some information about how the heart's functioning. So all these things, you know, can be, may be useful um, you know, for trending, but it's, it's, we don't know exactly what the troponin means in, you know, without studying more patients and who are in a well state. So, you know, what it should be when they're well and, you know, what happens when they're sick. Yeah. Gabby, can I ask, when we saw troponins, was it always associated with an event or had, did they do them when they were well? We do, not all of the patients have troponin levels or the BMP. They usually, when they do one, they usually do the other one. So Dr. Chappell is right. They usually do both. Not all of them have them. They usually more on the recent years. The, so those events that have happened more recently and those patients that are, you know, seen more recently, those are the ones that we have those values. And during a crisis or during the event, the numbers are strikingly high and they can be really, you know, alarming for, for the care team that's taking care of the patient. They tend to go down as the patient stabilizes and recovers. Associated with rhabdo, we've seen that in one or actually in two, in two of them. When they are in rhabdo, their troponin levels also correlate and they go really high. And when they return to baseline, they're not as low as you would expect on a normal patient. And this isn't just, again, it's just in two cases that they tend to be higher than you would expect on a healthy, normal individual. What's reported anyways, that's a normal level. Assume, right. This will run a little higher. But I, I, I do agree with Dr. Chaffield. These are relatively new markers, mostly associated with either like a cardiac infarct and not necessarily these type of, of crises or events. So I think we need more information. We need, we need more. 
Right. Uh, just to put that in context, anybody who's had a cardiac arrest will have a high troponin. It's it's just leaks out of the heart when the heart muscles damage. So I guess the real question is, exactly. I'm sure it's going to be high when something um, when somebody's had a a, a life threatening event, but if, um, but we don't know if it's something that's useful to trend when people are well, that mm-hmm. we maybe help predict that's, I think less likely, but I don't think we've just know enough yet to say that. Right. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, so you mentioned Dr. Gillingham, you mentioned that like you kind of categorized it into like three three things like with the left ventricle, the restrictive to hypertrophic mm-hmm. cardiomyopathy, and then the cardiac arrhythmias. And so I was just curious, like, um, because we don't all get to take our kids or we don't all get to go see um, Dr. Chatfield um, at like when we go into a cardiologist and now that I know that I can have my cardiologist, my son's cardiologist call her, this is great. Like, but, um, but I'm wondering with like, is it helpful to kind of take those three categories into your cardiologist that follows your kiddo and be like, look, these are three areas of concern. Like if you see uh, something in this direction. Right. And well, if they so what, see what, something in that direction, like, is it, is it cause for pause that maybe they should get an extra visit that year? You know what I mean? Or like call right. Dr. Chuffield then, you know? Um, uh, so those three categories I have to say are, are not my idea. That was Dr. Vincor's um, take on these medical records that he's reviewing with us. Um, we're hoping to to get that eventually published so that we could look at these records. And so then you would have a paper you could take to your cardiologist. Um, I think just discussing the spectrum um, and then having a cardiologist reach out to Dr. Chatfield is, is probably the best. I don't, again, I'm not a cardiologist, but I think saying, you know, there's, there's a wide spectrum that we're hearing about. And uh, these are some of the things that we might be concerned about. Can you tell me what your thoughts are? Um, they know, they know your child's or your, um, self, your, their heart, but way better than I do. So I'm just looking at what's on, on the paper and the records. So I would probably defer to what they're thinking, but bringing it to their attention, I don't think is, is a bad idea to say there's, there's some other things that have popped up. Yeah. I endorse that. Like any, most cardiologists or, and pediatric cardiologists are going to understand when they see a kid with a metabolic disorder, no matter what the name is, they generally understand that they're looking for cardiomyopathy and they'll be able to, you know, look at the echo and it doesn't matter what type it is. They're going to be looking for all of those types at the, at the same time. I think where I can be more helpful is more in these nuanced questions of like, well, should we be doing this, these other tests that are not necessarily in a, in a guidance, you know, or a recommendation statement that are more, you know, sort of as, as these kids are reaching older ages and, and, you know, doing better because of newborn screening or because of management, then what do we do when they're 20 or 25? And do we need to do these extra tests that we don't know quite as much about? But I don't, I, I don't want you to feel like your cardiologist doesn't know what they're looking for. They, they do. They and do. while you should always advocate for, you know, your, your child and in the point of things like this is to educate you about what, you know, what we're looking for. Um, and, and in some cases you will educate your cardiologist, um, you know, in general, they know what they're looking for and, and they're covering all of the basics. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like we've met a lot of, um, great, uh, cardiac specialists over the years. And I absolutely adore Christopher's current cardiologist. So if he gets to watch this video, I'm going to give him a shout out. Um, (laughs) um, well, one of the, one of the questions that, that came in, but it was also a question, Dr. Gillingham, that, that you shared. And I don't know if other parents, if feel comfortable giving their thoughts kind of on the spot. I mean, Karen asked, um, if you would be willing to do a study using, you know, putting in loop recorders or like maybe, maybe even using like the heart monitors as, as a part of this study. Um, but Dr. Gillingham asked the question of parents, like, what do you think in regards to the MRI or the stress test? And, you know, so I don't know if parents have thoughts or feelings about that. You can feel free to maybe email Dr. Gillingham later if you don't want to talk about it now, but if you do have initial like thoughts or, um, 
you know, comments or questions about what that study would entail. Like, um, like, I don't know, like, is there, is there risk with cardiac MRIs? Like I know generally speaking, I don't think of MRIs being filled with risk. I mean, or, or what would the I don't, risks of stress test be? Yeah, no, I, I actually, I think that's pretty low risk. Um, and we, we have IRB approval. So they, the IRB feels like it's pretty safe. Um, the MRI, you know, you have a, something's kind of pushing your heart and you have an IV in, but I, I typically don't like doing anything to anybody that I'm not willing to do myself. I, I, I'd be willing to have a cardiac MRI. I don't think that'd be a problem. Um, I think the dye is pretty safe as well. Um, people worry about kidney function, but I don't think that's a big issue. Uh, if you have poor kidney function, but these kids' kidneys seem to work great um, or be pretty healthy. The stress test, uh, it is a we did we did switch it to a bike because I do think with the neuropathy, running on a treadmill might be challenging for some patients. And it just increases the um resistance over time. It keeps getting harder and harder to, to pump on the bike. I've done a couple of um max testing. And you, you're trying to get enough oxygen. So it is tiring, but again, I've done them. So I, I don't have any, I don't think the, I think the risks are kind of low. The loop recorder is a really interesting question, Karen. Immediately my research hat brain kind of goes on. And I think doing it as a research study would be a hard to get funding for and b hard to get through the IRB because it's a surgical device. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that would be something. I don't, I don't know. Katie, we think about a loop recorder for a study. I just don't know. Cause I, my initial in, instinct is that might be difficult to accomplish. Do you feel like loop recorders offer a similar amount of information as the halter monitors? Well, in the cases that they were used, and again, Gabby can correct me if I'm wrong, no. So the halter, and there have been some halter monitors, I think she put in the chat up to 30 days. So that might've been more of those Z patches that, that Dr. Chaffield was talking about, but they didn't see anything in the short one. So the loop recorder, as I recall, it was like up to three years it can record. So it recorded for a lot longer time. And and the cardiologist was able to pick up things that wouldn't have been picked up on the, on the halter. So no, I don't know that I think they're exactly the same because it's obviously a lot longer period. Uh, but whether that's the answer or not, again, I, you know, I, I don't know. And it, it's a safe device, but you are implanting this device, you know, that's going to monitor over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it, oh, go ahead. It's an interesting thought. I, I have to think about it some more about as far as a, from a research perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, if there, um, I just want to give like just a brief pause moment to see if there's any more questions or thoughts about the study that Dr. Dr. Gillingham shared about. And also I'll put a plug in there because I know we had, um, we had a ton of people sign up for this that I know are going to be asking me for the video. So um, Dr. Gillingham, if you have people that are interested in giving you their cardiac information or they have thoughts on, oh, I would love for my child to do a study with the MRI thing. How do I sign up? Or like, how do I let her know that I'm willing to do it? I think it sounds great. Like um, is it Ashley you want them to get in touch with? Or you can email me directly and I can hook you up with Ashley will be the one that'll be doing the consenting and collecting records. If you want to, um, participate in the repository, um, as far as signing up for the study, yes, it, please let me know. We, we haven't hit the go. Yes. We're going to open up to recruitment. Um, I am hunting for a cardiac fellow, <laughs> um, but I would love to people's input. Um, it's, it's really been me that's been slowing down this process. Um, so, so I'm open to any feedback. So you can contact me and I can either put you in charge with Ashley or kind of take it all into account and we can see how we're going to move forward. I think we have a lot of, a lot of work to do, a lot of questions, um, but uh, hopefully we can slowly get some more information and get um, some answers in the future.
No, well, we really appreciate you, Dr. Gillingham and Gabby and Dr. Chatfield and Dr. Vinicor and all of the hard work you guys are putting forth with the heart for talking to patients, for answering our questions and concerns, um, especially like when we're scared or when we're not scared and things are going well. Just thank you for being available and willing to um, put your heads together and, and talk about these issues and work on these issues because I know um, as a parent, it is scary. Like when you open Facebook and you hear about a, a cardiac arrest and you don't know why, and like you see your, your healthy child in front of you, or you are your healthy self, you know, like it's, it, it can be scary. So it's comforting to know that you guys are, are working on this diligently and that you're asking a lot of questions and that you're allowing us to ask questions along with you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. All right. Well, um, if if you're unaware, Dr. Gillingham is going to join us here in a couple other weeks to talk about the eyes. So feel free to come back if you haven't already signed up for that one. And we thank you so much for coming tonight and listening and sharing and asking your questions. And we hope to see you soon. Thank you.